Well, when an author sets out to write a book, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, they often labor over that first line, right? How is it going to start? What's that first sentence? And there's been some very famous opening lines in the history of literature. Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities, maybe the most famous. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I have two favorites, opening lines of a book. Uh, One is C.S. Lewis's opening line from his book, Voyage of the Dawn Treader in the Chronicles of Narnia series. He opens that book with this line. There was a boy named Estasi Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. My other favorite's uh, J.I. Packer's opening line from his book, Knowing God, where he says, As clowns yearn to play Hamlet, so I have wanted to write a treatise on God. That statement of humility is especially striking and memorable, considering knowing God became such a classic. Well, when the Holy Spirit sets out to write a book through a human author, how does he begin? How does he start? Well, the answer obviously is he starts perfectly. The Holy Spirit doesn't write fluff, only substance. He only writes that which is helpful for building up and correcting and training in righteousness, right? Well, with this in mind, let's look at how this letter from Paul to the church of Colossae begins. And we're going to look at the intro before considering the main point of the whole passage, which is tied into the intro. But we'll sort of consider the intro a little bit separately first before diving into 3 through 8 and kind of the main chunk of the passage. But first, who were the Colossians? Well, Colossae was a city in what is today southern Turkey. But in Paul's day, it was one of a few prominent cities under Roman rule uh, along the Lycus River. And Paul had likely never been to Colossae, at least at the time of writing this letter. And so it it seems that the gospel came there, that this work began as a result of the missionary work of Epaphras, who likely became a Christian through through Paul's ministry in Ephesus, about 100 miles away. And the Colossians seem to have fallen prey to some false teaching. And this false teaching, broadly speaking, was that communion with God, fellowship with God, was attained through Christ, yes, but also through mystical experiences— through higher knowledge, through asceticism, just sort of extreme self-denial, and through an elevated view of spiritual beings, an angel, even bordering on angel worship, which Paul mentions in 2.18. And so the Colossians were tempted to undermine the gospel by adding to Christ. They were adding to Christ angel worship and asceticism, and they were wavering on the truth that Christ was sufficient. They were saying, yeah, Jesus, Jesus is great. We need Jesus. But we also need extreme self-denial and higher knowledge and philosophy. And we need angels on our side. And so to all of this, Paul in the book of Colossians hurls this Christological stick of dynamite that just explodes all of this false, <clears throat> this false teaching. And we learn in 1, 15 through 20, but throughout the book, that Christ has created all things in heaven and on earth. They're all made through him and for him. That he is supreme and all-powerful. And he's reconciled us to himself without the help of philosophies or asceticism or angels. But Paul also isn't an, an impersonal teacher of doctrine. He's not a theological textbook. Here you go, just read this, understand your faults, correct your course. 
he loves the Colossians. He cares about them. And you can see that in this greeting. It's very apparent. And so we'll look at Paul's first statement in a bit that he's an apostle. But let's briefly look at how rich this greeting is just after that statement. Look at the second sentence there. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Paul compliments the Colossians three times in that statement. He calls them saints, he calls them faithful, and then he calls them brothers. And so saint is a word that we often associate with maybe extraordinary Christians throughout church history, right? St. Paul, St. Augustine. But we see in this passage that this is actually a word applied to all Christians. It's a, it's a word that had connections with God's sanctuary or his temple. And so it denotes holiness and purity. Uh, it's to be set apart for God's service. And so we are saints. We have been made holy. We've been justified and we are being sanctified. What an encouragement that would have been to the Colossians and to us. But then he also calls them faithful. Now, remember, Paul is about to correct some of their pretty bad theology. They're bordering on angel worship. Like, faithful isn't the first word that comes to mind. And yet he calls them faithful. And aren't you glad, we should be glad, that faithfulness does not equal perfection in the Christian life? We see that in the Colossians and we see that in our own life. We can attest to it, right? We make mistakes. We repent. We learn. We grow. And that's what it means to be faithful in the Christian life. To be corrected. To be admonished by brothers and sisters and by his word. Then he calls them brothers. He reminds them that they're in the same spiritual family. Even if we don't have a family of our own, immediate family, we have a spiritual family. And that seemed to be enough for Paul. It certainly was a great encouragement to the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, in, in Isaiah 56, Isaiah's prophecy is that the eunuch will be given an everlasting name that will not be cut off. It's an amazing promise to make to a eunuch who couldn't have his own offspring here on earth. And so might one might wonder how. Like, how is that possible? Well, through the gospel, he is born again. All of us Christians are born again into a new spiritual family. And not only do we have brothers and sisters in Christ, but through evangelism and through a discipleship, we can actually become spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. Spiritual grandfathers and great-grandfathers, grandmothers and great-grandmothers. There's a pastor who was single and in his 50s, and he was particularly discouraged that, you know, he might never have children of his own that look like him and act like him. I was kind of mourning that. Well, one day a friend said to him, hey, uh, I met a guy that you discipled. And this pastor said, oh, really? That's, that's awesome. How did you know that I discipled him? And the friend responded, oh, it was easy. He was just like you. We're part of a spiritual family. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. But we also have spiritual children. Isn't that amazing? What a promise. And then look at this next statement. He wants them to have grace and peace from God, their Father. Now, he's not imparting more grace, but he's just praying that they'd be reminded of the grace that comes from God and the peace that comes from God, that his mercies are new every morning. And this grace doesn't flow to us from a cold and distant deity. It comes to us, Paul says, from God, our Father. 
Paul reminds us that God has lovingly condescended to invite us to call him by the most intimate name, Father, our Father. It's hard to fathom. It's almost scandalous, to be honest. When you think of who God is, the God who created all things, whom the highest heavens cannot even contain, God who is so holy and pure and transcendent that if we were to see him, meet him face to face, we would fall down dead. And it's this God that beckons to us and says, hey, call me dad, father. Folks, that's just the greeting. That's how the Holy Spirit begins a book. Paul, through the Spirit, packs so much spiritual encouragement into this greeting before moving on to teaching them and then admonishing them, correcting and and, and challenging them. And I think there's a lesson in that for us. Paul is going to correct the Colossians, right? But he's not overly harsh. He doesn't write to them and robotically tell them their faults and what is the right way. He cares about them and he cares for them. He encourages them first to show, hey, I'm for you. you He basically says, look, we're going to talk about some of this really bad theology. But first, I just want to tell you, Colossians, I love you guys. I'm for you. Grace and peace to you from our Father. He reminds them of all this spiritual encouragement and truth. And so similarly, when we are in a position to admonish someone, right, to correct someone, we should first clearly establish that we love them that we care about them, that we're for them, and that we need grace and correction just as much as they do. And the same is true not just of Christian relationships, but in evangelism. As we share the gospel with non-Christians, we should be humble. We shouldn't be proud or demeaning or harsh with them, seeking to just kind of get them with a gotcha line or make them look stupid. We must establish trust and try to show them that we care about them as we share the gospel with them, as we correct their false worldview. I love the way Francis Schaeffer says it. He said, I need to remind myself constantly that this is not a game I am playing. If I begin to enjoy it as a kind of intellectual exercise, then I am cruel and can expect no real spiritual results. As I push the man off of his false balance, he must be able to feel that I care for him. Otherwise, I will end up only destroying him. And the cruelty and ugliness of it all will destroy me as well. We must be loving, caring for people, even as we admonish them, even as we teach them. And Paul models that so well in this greeting. And so with that context and introduction in place, let's look at the rest of this passage. And the main point of this passage is hinted at in the very first verse. Paul introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus... By the will of God. By the will of God. Paul, in that very first sentence, makes it clear that apart from God, he is nothing. He's not an apostle. He doesn't even have faith, as we'll see later in this passage. But with God, he is what he is, by God's grace. And so Paul begins this letter with the truth that undergirds this entire passage. God is the source of everything good in us. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. And so that's what this whole passage is about. Paul is going to explain that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the source of our sanctification, 
It's the source of our identity as Christians, and it's the source of every spiritual promise that we hold dear. And so the main point of this passage and the main point of this sermon is this. The gospel of Christ is the source of our faith, love, and hope. The gospel of Christ is the source of our faith, love, and hope. To give you an idea where we're going, we're going to look at three points. First, God reveals the gospel. Then God transforms us through the gospel. And then God sends the gospel. So first, God reveals the gospel. So Paul says in this first verse, the very first statement, that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now stick with me here because I really want to zero in on that phrase, Paul, an apostle. Because it's through the ministry of the apostles that God revealed the gospel to us clearly. So verses 3 through 8, Paul talks about how this gospel transforms us and how it was sent to the Colossians. But how did God reveal the gospel to us in the first place? We can't climb our way up to God. How did God condescend and reveal the gospel to man, period? Well, he did it through his prophets, through his son, and through the apostles, through Paul. Paul didn't make up the gospel. This was not a novel idea that he came up with. He was an instrument of God to reveal it in detail. And so what is an apostle? Well, an apostle, the word literally just means sent ones. They're emissaries. And so they were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ, and they were commissioned by Christ uniquely to be his instruments. So the apostles were the 11 disciples, and then Matthias, who replaced Judas, and then Paul, whom Christ appeared to later and commissioned him to go out to the Gentiles. So in other words, Christ accomplished the gospel in our salvation. But then he commissioned the apostles to reveal the gospel to us in detail. So the apostles had a unique task, and that was to lay the foundation of the church. The apostles' task was to lay the foundation of the church. There are various parts of a house that are really important, right? There's plumbing, there's framing, there's electrical. But the foundation is most important. You could have a beautifully designed and well-built house, but if it's on sand, it's not going to last. The foundation must be solid. And the foundation of the church is Christ and his gospel. The good news of his incarnation, his perfect life, his atoning death, and his resurrection. And so God wanted to ensure that the right foundation was laid for his church. And so he tasked the apostles with the job and gave them unique supernatural gifts, the purpose of which was to attest to the divine authority of their message. So when he sent the apostles out, he didn't give them supernatural gifts. It's like, hey, bonus, you're apostles, you get to do miracles now, great. No, he did that because he was speaking through them to reveal his gospel, the way of salvation. And he gave them supernatural gifts as if to say, this is me speaking. And so when the apostles died out, those apostolic gifts, those unique individual gifts died out. There's no evidence in early church history of Origen or Athanasius or any of these having those supernatural gifts. So God gave them supernatural gifts to attest to the, um, the divine authority of their message. So once the gospel had been clearly revealed and recorded in the New Testament, their task was complete. The foundation was laid, and then Christians and pastors would continue to build on that foundation throughout church history, which has happened. But that foundation was set. Now, every religion believes in some version of revelation. For Muslims, it's the Quran. For Mormons, it's the Book of Mormon. Even secularists and naturalists have their sort of sacred texts, and Charles Darwin or David Hume. But other sacred texts just fall way short of the Bible, don't they? Unlike some other sacred texts, the Bible has held up historically. 
and archaeologically. It's also consistent within itself. So for example, the Quran speaks highly of the Bible and commends it. And yet the Bible rejects any other divinely authoritative text. Also, the teaching of the Bible clearly contradicts the teaching of the Quran. Namely, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so the Quran, actually by commending the Bible, actually condemns itself. The Quran also has verses that were abrogated and then later completely taken out. It has verses that absolve itself from any implications of contradictions. We could say similar things about the Book of Mormon or other sacred texts. There is simply no other book. There is no other revelation like the Bible. Countless opponents have tried to undermine it, to destroy its authority over the centuries. And yet God's revelation stands firm. As John Owen said, the Bible is the anvil that has worn out many hammers. But God hasn't just revealed his character and his commands. He's revealed the gospel. He's revealed the way of salvation. And that's significant. And it's distinct and somewhat different from other revelations or sacred texts. So Herman Bavink, theologian, points out that other religions in their sacred texts tell us how man can develop and achieve without God's special grace. In other words, other sacred texts say, here's the path, now make your way to God. Or achieve spiritual peace. Well, Christianity is distinct. It's different. Because the Bible says not just the path of righteousness, doesn't just reveal that, but the Bible tells us how deeply God can descend into his fallen creation to save it. The path of righteousness is made known to us in Scripture, but most importantly, we are told how God has destroyed the wall of hostility that was again between us and God. He shows us the path of righteousness, and then he tells us how we can have a new heart and a new spirit that we might run in that path. His word tells us how his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I love the way John Bunyan sums it up in his poem. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. All of their sacred texts, all of their revelation, it's law. Run, John, run, the law demands. Only God's revelation, only the gospel gives us wings. and allows us to soar in heights unknown with Christ and in his love. So praise God that he has revealed the gospel to us in the first place. We had no way of knowing him. We can't climb our way up to God. And we didn't deserve for him to reveal himself to us. We rebelled. We've all sinned. We are prone to wander, as we just sang moments ago. And yet he revealed himself by becoming like us, by speaking to his prophets, by coming and suffering and dying for our sins and three days later rising from the grave, conquering sin and death. This is the gospel that God has revealed to us in the prophets, in his son, and then through the apostles, including Paul in the New Testament. And we see in the next point that this gospel does not leave us unchanged. So God has revealed the gospel to us, and God also transforms us through the gospel. So beginning in verse 3, Paul writes, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. 
Of this you have heard before, in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. So in this passage, I really I need you to sort of keep your eyes closely linked uh, and, and tethered to the text, because there's some things I want you to really see here. Because in this passage, Paul peels back the layers behind the encouraging work going on in the lives of the Colossians. He's going to basically say, this is what's going on that's so encouraging. Here's why. And he's going to trace back the steps. So first, he thanks God since he heard of their faith and love for the saints. Okay? Because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. So their faith and their love is because of their hope. Okay, well, where does this hope come from? Well, Paul keeps tracing it back. Of this, meaning of this hope, You've heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So the hope is the gospel. Ultimately, it's the gospel that transforms us and leads to hope and love and faith in our lives as Christians. But not surprisingly, Paul first mentions faith, right? Because that is the most vital. There's none of these other things happen, right? There is no love. There is no hope. There's no sanctification until someone places their faith in Christ. And yet we can still say that the source of their faith is the gospel because, well, faith comes through hearing. We have to hear the gospel and then respond to it in the power of the Holy Spirit in faith. And so the gospel is still the source of our faith, but faith does come first demonstrably in the life of a Christian. But it's significant the way Paul words that, uh, the, the way he words it. Look at that. He says, I thank God when he prays for them for their faith. He doesn't say, we always marvel at your faith. Or he doesn't say, we're constantly impressed with your love for the saints. No, he starts with God. He says, we always thank God. Rather than stroking their ego, he thanks God because God is ultimately the one responsible for their faith in Christ Jesus and the love and hope that they have in the gospel. And uh, this really speaks to the Christian doctrine of election. Uh, This idea that we owe our faith in Christ ultimately to God as he works powerfully in his spirit to enable us to obey, to to have faith and believe in Jesus. Uh, Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. When Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, Jesus responds, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you but my Father who is in heaven. When I first heard of this doctrine of election when I was in high school, I really did not like it. I thought this is not something that God would do, uh, enable us to believe, not do that with some others. But the more I read through my Bible and the more I understood this doctrine, it began to be something not only I believed in or tolerated, it actually became a doctrine I cherished. It's one thing to say, thank you, God, for making a way for me to be saved so that I could choose you, and I'm so happy that I've made that decision. It's a completely different thing to say, God, I was so hardened in sin that I never would have chosen you. Thank you, praise you for rescuing me from my own sin. And blindness. See, in sin and in our fallen nature, we think that we are happiest 
when we are receiving some praise or glory and accolades or accumulating achievements for ourselves. But that's actually not true. That is one of the greatest lies propagated by Satan in human history. We are actually most happy when we are lost in God's glory. When we are swimming in his beauty and majesty and power so that we are consumed to say, Lord, I just want to make your name great. That is when we are most happy. But if we think that God makes a way and then we ultimately are the ones that choose, well then, to some degree, you must glory in yourself. Why didn't that friend or neighbor believe in Christ when they heard the same gospel presentation as you did? Well, if someone presses the issue, then you must to some degree say, well, I guess I was a little better, a little holier, a little closer to heaven. I think election causes us to see our profound depravity and how undeserving we are to have faith in Christ, how undeserving we are to have hope and peace and to be able to call God our Father. And it causes us to be filled and overflow with praise to God and his grace for saving us. I love the way one hymn puts it. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. Or as Charles Spurgeon said, You will never glory in God till, first of all, God has killed your glorying in yourself. Our faith, like the Colossians' faith, is from God through the gospel. But Paul also thanks God for their love for all the saints. Faith without works is dead, right? And so naturally, Paul mentions the good works that accompany their genuine faith and so confirm its authenticity. The Colossians didn't have dead faith. It led to works. And so they, and they also didn't have an individualistic faith. They didn't say, God, I will take you personally, but I reject your church. They rightly understood that they were saved into a family. So they had love for all the saints. This is just a good question to ask ourselves do we have love for all the saints? Right? Are we growing in our love toward other believers in our church? Uh, do we think about Christians across our country or across the globe? Paul says in Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Genuine love compels action, Right? When we love someone, we will act lovingly toward them. We can't help it. Well, how are you loving other members of FBC? How are you doing spiritual good to others throughout the week? Or caring for others in this church? How are you caring for Christians globally or caring about them? Maybe get a a map and just try to pray for one country and the Christians in that country a day throughout the year. All these things will grow us to love all the saints, as we should, as the Colossians were. And and according to Paul, this love stems from our hope that is stored up for us in heaven. 
So how is faith and love rooted in hope? Well, without the hope of eternal life in the gospel, there can be no faith, right? Because we not only need God to reveal himself to us and his holiness and convict convict us of our sin, if that was it though, we wouldn't have hope. We wouldn't have hope to realize that he would forgive us, that we would have eternal life. So we wouldn't repent. We wouldn't trust in him. It actually takes hope of eternal life. The belief that God is a kind and gracious God who will forgive us. When we understand that, then we go to him in faith. And so our faith is rooted in hope. But also, this hope motivates our love for others. It motivates our love for the saints. Love is costly, right? It, it takes time. It takes energy. It takes money to love people well. And there's no shortcut around that. Chat GPT, AI is really big right now. People are using it for a lot of things. And maybe some of you are thinking, hey, next birthday card, next anniversary letter, maybe let's just let Chat GPT write it, you know? Don't do it. It's not, it's not, it's not love. It doesn't cost you anything, right? It wouldn't be meaningful. And people, people know that because you didn't do anything to, to write this. If I ever write an anniversary letter using Chat GPT, please pray for my marriage. <laughs> But loving others is costly, and faith in Christ is sometimes costly. Sometimes it costs people their lives. Sometimes it costs people their promotion. Sometimes it costs people a a pleasurable experience or comfort or approval. To some, it costs a big move away from friends or family. But what is all of that? What are all of those costs and those sacrifices if we have the love of God and a glorious inheritance awaiting us in heaven. That's how the hope motivates us in love. We're strangers and exiles in this land. We have no abiding city here. So even when we lose loved ones, even when we have to give tear-filled long goodbyes, just remember that as Christians, we are heading toward an eternal city, the New Jerusalem, our happy home, where congregations never break up and Sabbaths have no end. Do you know what Hebrews 11 says about those who see themselves as exiles in the land, but fixing their eyes on the hope of eternal life? It says, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. George Mueller was a Christian in 19th century England who started an orphanage and helped thousands of children. He lived to be about 90, 91. He was a man of extraordinary faith. In the last 68 years of his ministry, he did not take a salary, but would just pray for the needs that he had and trusted God to meet them. And in 68 years, he never went into debt or had to take out a loan. Well, Mueller... Uh, knew that love was costly and sacrificial. And he said that the secret to all true service in the Lord was joy in God. In other words, Mueller believed that if the hope of our joy in God drove us to loving self-sacrifice, then we would be more than glad to do it. This alone would lead to true long-term sacrificial love in our lives. And Mueller said this, and this really clearly answers the question from our text— of how love springs from hope. 
Mueller writes, self-denial is not so much an impoverishment as a postponement. We make a sacrifice of a present good for the sake of a future and greater good. Whatever be done in the way of giving up or self-denial or deadness to the world should result from the joy we have in God. One time, Mueller met with a woman who discussed a potential financial gift to the orphanage. And he didn't ask her to give the gift. He never did that. That was his practice. But after she left, he dropped to his knees and went to the Lord in prayer. And he prayed that God would make this sister so happy in God and enable her to realize her true riches and inheritance in the Lord Jesus that she might be constrained in the love of Christ to cheerfully give the gift of 500 pounds. You can actually learn more about Mueller and many other um, Christians in church history in the biographical talks John Piper did in his pastor's conference, Desiring God. For 27 years, every year he would do an hour or hour and a half talk on a different Christian in church history. And they're phenomenal. Um, They're all free. So if you're a podcaster, if you've got a commute, throw that on. It is sure to be edifying. It was also compiled in a book called 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy. Please take advantage of that resource, and it is guaranteed edification. But as Miller was saying, when we are filled with the hope of the gospel, when we are vividly reminded of the love of God for us in Christ, when we see him hanging on the cross for us, not only will we joyfully lay down our life in sacrificial service, but we will also glorify God as we show the world around us how satisfying God is. Isn't that the measure of how valuable something is? How satisfied it makes people who have it? Many people are running after things in this world thinking if they have that job, if they have that salary, if they have that vacation home or that approval or that success, then they will be satisfied. But as we as Christians dwell on the hope of eternal life that is ours in the gospel, we will be truly satisfied and a joy that this world knows nothing of. And then people will look around, and they'll see, and they'll notice, and suddenly things will begin to drop to the floor from their heart's embrace as they turn to Christ in us and say, that's what I want. God is what I need, because he alone can satisfy. The gospel transforms us as God fills us with faith, hope, And his spirit so that we joyfully lay down our lives and become more like Christ. But in order for this gospel to transform more people, it has to be sent. It has to go forth. And that's our last point. God sends the gospel. So Paul says, of this hope, you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel is the source of our hope which leads to transformation in our life, including faith and love for others and love for God. And this gospel of Christ, Paul tells us, is spreading everywhere. Paul says in verse 6 that this gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Well, how did the gospel come to the Colossians? Well, Paul tells us in verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So the Colossians heard the gospel through Epaphras, who is a fellow servant of Christ along with Paul. And Epaphras is only mentioned here and in Philemon. 
And so it's possible he was converted under or related to Paul's ministry in Ephesus and then went to Colossae, maybe where he was from. In any case, Paul knew Epaphras and he commends him highly here to the Colossians as their pastor and shepherd. And I think this should just cause us to pause for a moment and thank God for sending someone into our life to teach us the gospel. Paul says, just as you learned it, the gospel from Epaphras. Every single Christian has someone specific to thank for bringing the gospel to them. God in his wisdom made it so that we must hear the gospel from someone preaching. It's Romans 10, 17. But it's also made clear in Romans 10, 14, and 15. How are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Epaphras understood that concept. He knew that the Colossians would never hear the gospel unless someone preached it to him. And so he went. He counted the cost. He made the sacrifice and he went. When's the last time you thanked God for the person you learned the gospel from? That they counted the cost. That they endured the inconvenience, the sacrifice. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a coworker. When's the last time you thanked that person, if possible? Maybe do that today or this week. I became a Christian at a youth event called Acquire the Fire. Never said I like the name, but Acquire the Fire I did. And a guy named Josh McDowell spoke at that event. And years later, I got to meet him and shake his hand and say, Josh, thank you so much for preaching the gospel faithfully. I became a Christian that night. It's so meaningful. And the gospel not only always goes out through individuals, but when it does go out, God always uses it powerfully. That's clear in this text. Look at Paul's statement in verse 6 again. In the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. The gospel is like a freight train. You better get on the train or get off the tracks because it's coming through and it's changing lives. It is bearing fruit and increasing. And what makes this statement even more amazing is the context in which this was happening. This is the Roman Empire, uh, the Roman Empire Paul is talking about, right? Open pagan worship, religious polytheism, prostitution cults, various ceremonies honoring different gods, violent persecution toward Christians. And yet the gospel is going forth and bearing fruit. This, is, this should be so encouraging to us. In our day and context, there are many challenges to doing evangelism. Our culture is changing and becoming more openly hostile to the Christian faith in areas of gender and sexuality, abortion. Even the ethic of forgiveness is fading. It's not seen as positive by some. And Christians must have wisdom to know how to respond to these challenges in grace and truth. But let us as Christians not think for a second that the solution is to withdraw. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
do you realize that Jesus is describing the church as an offensive institution in that statement? He's not saying the gates of the church will prevail against Satan's forces attacking it. He says the gates, the doors of hell, won't prevail against the church. There are people coming to faith all over the world, including places where Christians are persecuted the worst, like China, like the Middle East, like North Korea. And I wonder if in part it is because the Christians there don't sit around wasting time talking about how the culture is changing. They don't have an established Christian culture to lose. And so standing on the promises of God, they occupy themselves with taking the fight to the gates of hell because they know in the power of the Holy Spirit they will prevail. Look, our brothers and sisters in Christ have suffered all over the world for 2,000 years. (laughs) If it's our time to step up to the plate, so be it. But I'll tell you this, Christ will be victorious in the end. So if I'm going to fall, I don't want to fall running away from the battle, but toward the fight. After George Washington and the Continental Army defeated a British regiment on Christmas Day after crossing the Delaware famously, their enemy was on the run. And so Washington decided to pursue them. And many of the soldiers were Pennsylvania militia. They, were, they had marched overnight in the snow, some of them without shoes. They were worn, they were tattered, and they were on the brink of exhaustion. Yet the sight of George Washington on his horse riding out into battle with them had a profound effect. One young officer who was present wrote this later. I shall never forget what I felt when I saw him braving all the dangers of the field and his important life hanging as it were by a single hair with a thousand deaths flying around him. Believe me, I thought not of myself. As we take the gospel to others that they might believe and as we at times feel worn down and exhausted from that battle, let's not forget to look up And see our Savior, not risking his life, but laying it down for us. Even better than George Washington, he rode on. He rode on in majesty. The king of kings rode on a lowly donkey toward the cross. Meek, perfect, lowly, loving, he died. And he rose again, and he will never die again. And neither will those who trust in him. This is the gospel of hope. Have you believed it? If you haven't, trust in Christ. He is your only hope of real forgiveness, of a clean conscience, of true freedom, and full and lasting joy. And if you have trusted in him, Remember your salvation and the internal inheritance that awaits you until your heart is so filled with gladness that it bursts in cheerful love and service toward others.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel of hope that leads to our faith, our love. Lord, I pray, God, that you would please remind us of these truths. Remind us of the internal inheritance that we have as Christians. That you would cause our hearts to swell in joy in you. That we might joyfully and gladly lay down our life and self-sacrificing love toward others. And Lord, I pray that you would please grow us to be consumed with making your name great. We love you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.